Open in your Bibles to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 5, is where we're going to be. So we've been walking through a series. This is the last one. It's not on the screen. We're kind of slowly fading out of it. Uh, we're not talking about laments today. So if you're, you're sad about that, you can lament. Uh, if you're not sad about that, then I'm not either. Uh, and so we're not talking about laments today, but we are finishing up our series on, on lamenting or on walking through hard times and talking about what is our standard call or, or attitude that we're, like, what's the standard attitude we're supposed to have as believers as we walk in this world? Because the truth is that we've been talking about laments, we've been talking about grieving, but the reality, or but, the truth, the reality, whatever, I'll, I'll quit saying buzzwords. We've been talking about laments, we've been talking about grieving, we've been talking about sadness, but, but that is not where God desires for us to remain forever. That is not supposed to be our baseline from now until Jesus returns. Yes, we will experience times of grief, times of sadness, but the standard for us is joy. The standard is joy, and that is what we're going to look at today. And so, turn in, turn in uh, your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 5. I've, I've really intentionally said we're only doing two and a half or three and a half verses because I've taken too many verses recently. For example, last week when we went through the entire book of Lamentations, uh, which I thought was good, but also it was long. So this week we're doing like a couple verses. But I'm, gonna, I'm not texting. I'm looking up a, a picture because I want to tell you about something. There is a thing called the Schmidt Pain Scale in which this guy... I'm taking a, I screenshotted it here. Okay, so the Smith pain, pain Scale. This guy's an entomologist. Is that right? Is that, is, studies insects? Entomolo- entomolo- okay, he's an entomologist. And his name is, I uh, should have looked this up as well. I don't remember. Something Schmidt, okay? Now, what he does is he studies insects. And so he, but he studies, he studies these certain insects, which are like hornets and ants and bees and things like that sting you. Hymen something, hymen, hymenacrids, hymen, hymen, what? Hymenopras. Close enough. Okay, anyways. Okay. Bugs that sting you that you don't want, that you get the hornet spray and you spray the whole can at like two of them, that thing. The, he studies those, Okay. Now, what he does, he travels over the world with, with these bottles, and he goes and he, he takes them because he wants to study their venom. But every one of them he gets, he, he gets them to sting him so that he can create a catalog or a pain scale. And so, and so he, this is amazing, okay? And so I'm going to read you some of his descriptions because he started out, and he still does this numerically, to where he rates, rates the pain of a sting from anywhere from zero to a four. And so like a four is like extreme pain, so it's like a tarantula hawk or like this certain kind of ant down in South America. And those are the ones that like when it stings you, your arm is paralyzed and you're screaming on the ground for about two hours. That's kind of the number four, okay? But then, you know, a typical ant is like a one. 
And, uh, and so, so but, but he realized, he, he started to describe, as he would sit down, he would think about these different stings, and he would say, these different stings are, like, they vary. And so, like, two of them can be threes, and they can hurt really bad, which I'm proud to say I've been stung by a three, okay? Uh, but, so I've been, but, so they, they have these threes, but all, not all threes sting in the exact same way. They don't all have the same experience, and so he studies their venom, and so, and so he starts describing the different stings along with the numerical number he gives it. Okay, so I'm going to read some of these to you. So this is just like a, a, a honey wasp. Okay, this is like a one. Spicy, blistering, a cotton swab dipped in habanero sauce that has been pushed up your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, here's another one. An Asian needle ant. Nightfall following a day at the beach. You forgot the sunscreen. Your burnt nose lets you, let you know. Sur- suturing army ant. A cut on your elbow that has been stitched with a rusty needle. All right. The nocturnal hornet. Rude, insulting. An ember from your campfire is glued to your forearm. Here's the, okay, this is the, tarant- I want to read you the tarantula hawk and the bullet ant, and then one other, it's, it's hilarious, okay. Okay, so the tarantula hawk, blinding, fierce, shockingly electric. A running hairdryer has been dropped into your bubble bath. A bolt out of the heavens. Lie down and scream. <laughs> so he says, okay, here's another one. The bullet ant, pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. It's okay. Here's the other. I gotta find it real quick. Let me find it. Hold on. This is it's really good. I'm sorry. Okay. This is the artistic wasp. Pure, then messy, then corrosive. Love and marriage, followed by divorce. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so this is his pain scale. Now, I'm telling you all of these. I think this is great. It's greatness. But I'm telling you all of these because we all hate pain, okay? We all don't want to experience pain. We all don't want to experience hardship. But what we're going to learn from Paul in Romans is actually that in some ways, pain can be good. Or, it, or if you want to say it another way, at least it can be used for good. And so there's some ways in which your pain can be used for good by God in your life. And so that's what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 5. And so before we begin, I want to read verse 1 uh, to you because this is the overarching theme of this pericope right here. So it says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, that's the overarching theme. So, so all of Romans leading up to chapter 5 is Paul trying to demonstrate that your righteousness before God, which means God viewing you as perfect, is not of your own doing. You can't do it yourself. 
God has to do it. And so he would, he would answer these, these questions of like, well, what about Abraham? What about David? And he would say, even Abraham and even David, who, if you're not familiar, they were major Old Testament figures, major figures in the Jewish faith. And he said, even both of them were righteous before God or had a relationship with God based upon faith not based upon attending church a number of times or not cussing enough or, or not cussing too much, you know, you know what I'm saying, um, or, or not getting mad and, like, too much or by, uh, you know, whatever the thing may be. Like, not, like, doing certain things will never attain God for you. And what he is saying is that righteousness before God or goodness before God or God looking at you and saying, I love you, you're perfect before me, you can have a relationship with me, is only by faith. And so here's what he says in verse 1 is, therefore, since we have been declared righteous or good or perfect before God by faith, here's what he says, we have peace with God. We're not going to talk about this, but we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, okay? So that's the, that's the context, So we have been made righteous for God by our faith, by simply believing in Him, and that has given us peace with Him, that's given us access to His grace. But this last thing is the thing I want to focus on, okay? Look at the second half of verse 2. And we rejoice. Here's the third thing. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in in the hope of the glory of God. Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is our standard attitude. This is our standard call of how to live our lives from here until Jesus returns, and that is to rejoice. What does it mean to rejoice? What does it mean? It means to feel joy or to feel great delight in what God has done for you, and to give it expression. To give, like, to, to give it expression, that could be worship. That could mean read your Bible and follow Him. That could mean share Him with someone else. But it means to feel a great delight in God and to give it expression in your life. That's what it means to rejoice. At least that's what it means for Paul here. And so, there's a curious phrase at the end of this, because it doesn't totally make sense here. Look back at verse 2. He says, we rejoice in the hope of what? The glory of God. What does that even mean? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Like, glory is one of those things that's like, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us or to me. I'm like, does it just mean he's shining? Or does it mean like I, like I, he's powerful? Like, like it's, 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 it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Compare this to Romans 3.23. Look back at Romans 3.23, and this is a verse that many of us know. But it says, For all have sinned and fall what? Short of the glory of God. Short of the glory of God. So there is some aspect of God's glory that mankind shared with him prior to sinning in the fall. 
So Adam and Eve in the garden, there was an aspect of God's glory in which they shared with him there that they lost when they sinned and rebelled against him. C.S. Lewis says this in The Problem of Pain. He says, it, is, it was a loss of status as a species, the humankind. What man lost by the fall was his original specific nature. To where God came to him and he said, dust thou art, and into dust shalt thou return. That's what God says. He said, after, after they sinned, he said, you, you were formed out of dust, and you're going to return to dust. You are losing some aspect of what I've created you to be. And he says this, the total organism which has been taken up into his spiritual life was allowed to fall back into the merely natural condition from which at his making it had been raised. So he said, when God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, he breathed life into him and gave him an aspect of his glory to share with him, whatever that means, but when they sinned, God removed that from them and allowed them to fall back in their natural condition to where they're going to return to dust one day. And so what, what Paul is saying in Romans 3.23 is that. He's saying, for all people have sinned and have fallen short of the glory that they had at the beginning. Therefore, it was removed from them. But look what Paul says here. Since we have been made righteous by faith, through your faith, God views you as perfect, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which means we rejoice in, in the hope that one day God is going to return and complete our sanctification, complete the process of making us like Jesus and return the glory that we share with Him. That's the hope. That's the hope that we have to where we will actually be made righteous. We will actually be made sinless, and He will restore the glory that we lost. That's what He says here. So we can rejoice in knowing that one day this is not all that it is. Our sinful lives, our pain is not all that it is, but one day God is going to restore us back to the condition we had at the beginning. That's what he's saying. That's where our hope is. We can rejoice in that and knowing that one day that is going to come to us. But look what he says in verse 3. He moves on. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. So this is counterintuitive here. We can, we can rejoice, and one day Jesus is going to return and, like, complete us and, and, and give us this glory to share with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But then he says also we can rejoice in our afflictions, in our suffering, in our hardship, in our hard, like, lives. This is counterintuitive here. Kind of like, so in a house fire, which uh, some of you know there was a house fire in our family uh, last year or my parents had a house that burned down. Um, you know what's interesting about house fires? Is that in the aftermath of a fire, when you're looking through what survived the fire, the fire and smoke is not your only problem. In fact, when you're looking at what you have left or what's remaining, you know what the main issue you have then is? Water damage. 
because you have men like Troy Baker who run in there all willy-nilly and shoot the fire hose everywhere. Okay, so, like, so water. Like, so when, the, when firemen come to, to put a fire out at your house, they spray water on everything. They spray everything to, to make sure there's no embers anywhere to get the fire completely out. And if you have, like, and then they come in and, like, chair holes in your roof. And they, anything that was not destroyed by the fire is destroyed by the firemen, just as a heads up. So if you have a fire, just consider before you call the firemen. Anyway, so, but it's counterintuitive, right? You think, why would there be water damage if there was a fire? And what Paul is saying here is that not only do we rejoice in the hope of what is going to come to us in the future, but we can actually rejoice today in our afflictions. doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, we're not masochists. Like, we're not saying, hey, we enjoy pain or we enjoy these things. No, but we, what we do is we rejoice because of these, this pain or this hardship, this suffering produces something within us. It produces something in us to where, for example, a football team, it's college football is back, okay? College football. Teams go through hard practices. Why? To prepare you for the game. The harder the practice is, the more prepared you are when the game comes. For example, when I uh, played football, um, I'm, okay, I'm not that bad of an athlete, but when I played football, I was on the C team and the B team, okay, when there was no C team. Anyways, I hated practice. I hated everything about going to practice, but I loved playing in the games because that was fun. That was real competition, but the workout part of it was not fun. It wasn't fun, and in this same sense, affliction or suffering or hard times are our workout. They are our practice because it, it enables us, it forces us to produce things that we don't want to produce naturally. Like naturally, I don't love being a servant. I don't love like dying to myself. I don't love being patient. I want to be served and I want things fast. And uh, we moved up here. Now we have Amazon one-day shipping, not two-day shipping. And so like I, like, I love that. I don't want to serve, but, pre- but hardship and suffering and having 4,000 kids forces you forces you to be patient, forces you to die to yourself. It forces these things in you. It practices that muscle that you don't want to to practice. And so it produces godly qualities, hardship, hard times, suffering, produces godly qualities in us like patience, like dependency, depending on God to give you strength to get through that day, or faithfulness. So, for example, I talked about it. We, many of us have kids, and for our kids, like, at times, it's very hard. Like, for me, for us, like, I'm speaking for myself, Dare's amazing, but speaking for myself, all of our kids right now are very difficult. Not in the sense of, like, they're just, like, obstinate, although sometimes they are, but, but they're just, it's difficult in the sense that there's always other tasks, there's always something else that needs to be done. There's always someone else that's crying because they want to be picked up or because they hit their head for the 15th time or they, uh, whatever the thing may be. There's always something else I need to do or one of us has to do. And so there's not, there's like for most days on our schedule, and, and many of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. On most days, 
we have maybe 30 minutes, if that, of, of time to do just stuff, anything we want to do that's not related to kids. And that on, that's kind of generous on some days because you finally put everyone down, you have to go wash the bottles or wash dishes or whatever the thing is, and then you have to take a shower, which for me takes 30 minutes. I don't know why. And, um, and so, like, you've got, you've got this little bit of time, and then, like, you're like, oh, no, it's 1030. <sighs> okay, okay, I got this little bit of time before 11 o'clock, and then, like, oh, no, if I wait till 11 to go to bed, then I'm going to not sleep at all. And then, you know, and then you're like thinking about, thinking about when you got to wake up the next day. Things are difficult. Things get difficult. And so not all suffering has to be a death, although it can be. It can't just be life is hard at the moment because of where you're at in life. And what Paul is saying is in these times in which, which we are, it's difficult and it's, it's, it's hard and like I don't want to die to myself and I don't want to serve my kid right now and go pick him up under the kitchen table because he hit his head again under the kitchen table. Like, and when I don't want to go do that, like I, everything in me is just tries to shut down and get angry. And you know what comes out of me often? Frustration. Anger. That's what comes out of me most days. Not because I hate my kids. I love my kids. I think they're adorable. But just, it's another task. And in that moment, what's happening is this hardship is revealing something about my heart. It's revealing something that's inside of me that's ungodly. Because what do I want in that moment? Me. I want me time to sit down and look over fantasy football stuff. Or I want me time to look at nothing on the internet. Like, what, like literally, I'm going to look at text ags and just see what's happening with the Aggies for the 4,000th time. Like, like newsflash, nothing. There's no games. But anyway, I don't care. I just want to sit down and just be quiet and look at what's happening. And, uh, but I've got another kid screaming. And so like, I get frustrated. And all of a sudden, this is being revealed. It's coming out of me over the past couple weeks that I am idolatrous because I love myself. And a hard, hard time of having all of our kids right now and being so little is revealing about my heart that I love me. I don't love dying to myself. I don't love serving. I'll serve some of the times, but I don't want to serve 100% of the time. And so, and so that's what Paul is saying is that we can rejoice in our afflictions because we know, like, we rejoice in our hope that one day God will make us complete and he will make us like Christ and we will, he will return that glory we had with him forever. But we can rejoice now in our afflictions because it's revealing things about our hearts to lead us on that pathway to becoming like Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Therefore, we can rejoice in our afflictions because through them, God is making us more like Jesus. And look what he says. Go back to verse 3. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Affliction produces perseverance or steadfastness or the, the desire to hold fast to Jesus. Because when you are given the test, when you are given an opportunity to, like, of, of affliction, you, that's a moment in which you are called to decide whether you are going to pursue Jesus and follow him and stay perseverant towards him, or whether you're going to fall away. So most of us are Texans. If you're not a Texan, then I'm going to tell you about the Alamo. 
Okay, so in, in San Antonio, there was a fort or a mission called the Alamo, and uh, it was one of the great, like, in Texas history, you learn this is one of the great stands of Texas in which we hold fast to it. We're like, yeah, Texas! It's amazing, okay? Now, at, at the Battle of the Alamo, in which we lost, okay, we lost the battle, but um, at the Battle of the Alamo, Lieutenant Colonel William Travis was there, and on the last days of the battle, Santa Ana or whoever it was who was coming with the, with the Mexican army to come and take over the mission, uh, they were surrounded, and they knew, we're going to die. And so William Travis, he told his guys, he pulled out his saber, it sounds cool, pulled out his saber, and he drew, he drew a line of sand where this actually happened or it's legend, I don't know, and I don't care because it's a great story. He, pulled, he drew a line in the sand, and he said, okay, what did he say? I don't know, something, he said something along the lines of, <laughs> it's, it's a build, it's a great story. So he, so he's, he, he drew this line in his sand, and he said, basically, if you want to stay and defend the Alamo, you cross that line, you stand with me. But if you want to surrender and flee, then go ahead and go. And legend has it that all but one man, or all but one man, crossed the line with him. And they fought for the, fought for the Alamo, and every one of them died. But at that point in which they were surrounded, when test, the moment of testing came, there was a decision to make whether you were going to surrender and fall away and give up or whether you were going to stand and you were going to fight and you were going to persevere. That was the decision they had to make. And the same is true for us. When the day of affliction comes, when the day of suffering comes, when the day of hard times come, there is a decision that you are going to have to make. It's presented to you. You don't have the option of whether you want to face it or not. It's given to you. So it's hard today. And the question is, is are you going to persevere and hold fast to Jesus and follow him, or are you not? And so for, for Paul, what he says is we rejoice in our afflictions because it presents us this, this decision. We rejoice because it forces us to make a decision. And afflictions, what do they do? They produce perseverance. It's a muscle. The more you use it, the easier it becomes. That's what he's saying. And look what endurance produces in verse 4. And endurance produces proven character. It produces proven character. And what this means is character that has been tested and proven to be faithful or proven to be true. And so the more you persevere in following Jesus, the more your character follows along in becoming more like Jesus. That's what he's saying. And your life will prove whether that's the case or not, whether you persevered or not, will prove your character. And look what this says. And proven character produces hope. And so all of this is pointing towards this one thing that we desire, and that's hope. That's the focal point of all of this. Hope in Jesus. Hope in a future restoration with Him. And so, and so your sufferings, your affliction leads you to decide whether you're going to persevere and follow Jesus or not. And when you flex that muscle or when you stretch that muscle, it becomes easier to do that. And what happens is your character follows that. Because whether, if, like at that moment when you decide to follow Jesus, you are making a decision of saying, what this guy says is true, and so therefore I'm going to follow it. 
And so what follows someone who is persevering in following Jesus usually is his character or her character and becoming more like him. Because you're not going to follow someone if you're not interested in becoming like them. And then what follows that proven character, the more you follow Jesus, is increased hope. Increased hope. And so our sufferings, our hardship, our pain, our hard days, they force us to use hope. They force us to use it. That our perseverance, that our faith, that our hard work won't be in vain. It won't be a waste. It won't be worthless. But, but that we hope that what Jesus said is true. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, when Jesus says this, Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And catch this, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's, what, here's where I'm getting at that, with that. As you pursue Jesus and you persevere in him and your character follows, that leads towards increased hope that one day he will restore you and that your life will not be in vain and your hardship will not be in vain. And so the increased hope goes towards believing that what Jesus said there, that one day I will find rest for my soul, is true. That's what he's saying here. And catch what he says in verse 5. And this hope will not disappoint us. This hope will not do, disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so God proved his love for us on the cross when Jesus died in our place. But also he's given the Spirit to pour out his love in our hearts where subjectively you can, like you can know internally, yes, God does love me in the midst of this. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's like, that hope that we are pressing on and following will not disappoint us. And you know that because deep down you know that God loves you. That's what he says here. And so not only do we rejoice in the hope of sharing in God's glory again, but we rejoice in our sufferings now that strengthen our hope of sharing in God's glory in the future. Look what he says, and look what, look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Read this and we'll be done. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed. That's what he's talking about, this process. It's being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing a weight of glory. Did you catch that? This momentary light, light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That's what's awaiting us for those who are perseverant and who follow Jesus. So that we do not focus on what is seen, but, what, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
And so with Paul, what the call is, is to rejoice. Rejoice. That should be our standard mode. It's to rejoice both in our hope for the future, but also in our, in our opportunities to, today to root out sinfulness in our lives, to lead us to look more like Jesus, which leads us to hope even more in Him that He will, he will return for us one day. That's the call. That's the call. Where are you? Where are you? Like, have you, like, do you rejoice? Like, have you rejoiced in the last six months or six years? Like, has the thought of God and, like, or what Jesus has done for you on the cross, has the thought of Him returning for you one day and giving you a glorious future led you to rejoice? Led you to, to, to praise Him and, and feel grateful over a God that loves you, desperately loves you and came for you? And for some of us in the room, this might be our first time to hear about Jesus or to maybe get it, who Jesus is for the first time. But the same that's true for all of the believers in this room can be true for you if you believe in Jesus. Catch this. What did he say in the first verse of Romans? For we know our righteousness is by faith. You too can gain a righteousness and gain this hope with God by believing in Jesus and following him and being perseverant and holding fast to Him throughout your life. You can have this. Here's how you do that. You pray to Him and you say, Jesus, I want to live for You. I believe You, and I want to follow You. Help me to follow You. 